We are controlling transmission. If we wish to make it louder, we will bring up the volume. If we wish to make it softer, we will tune it to a whisper. Poetry night. You are about to participate in a great adventure. No. Monday, October 15th, we said. And this chapter, chapter one, is called Writing Off the Subject. And he writes, I often make these remarks to a beginning poetry writing class. You'll never be a poet until you realize that everything I say today and this quarter is wrong. It may be right for me, but it is wrong for you. Every moment I am, without wanting or trying, telling you to write like me. But I hope you learn to write like you. In a sense, I hope I don't teach you how to write, but how to teach yourself how to write. At all times, keep your crap detector on. If I say something that helps, good. If I say it is no help, let it go. Don't start arguments. They are futile and take us away from our purpose. As Yeats noted, your important arguments are with yourself. If you don't agree with me, don't listen. Think about something else. When you start to write, you carry to the page one of two attitudes, though you may not be aware of it. One is that all music must conform to truth. The other, that all truth must conform to music. If you believe the first, you are making your job very difficult, and you are not only limiting the writing of poems to something done only by the very witty and clever, such as Auden, you are weakening the justification for creative writing programs. So you can take the attitude if you want, but you are jeopardizing my livelihood as well as your chances of writing a good poem. If the second attitude is right, then I still have a job. Let's pretend it is right because I need the money. Besides, if you feel truth must conform to music, those of us who find life bewildering and who, who don't know what things mean but love the sound of words enough to fight through draft after draft of a poem can go on writing. Try and stop us. One mark of a beginner is his impulse to push language around to make it accommodate what he already conceived to be the truth or, in some cases, what he has already conceived to be the form. Even Auden, clever enough at times to make music conform to truth, was fond of quoting the woman in the Forster novel who said something like, quote, How do I know what I think until I see what I've said? Close quote. A poem can be said to have two subjects, the initiating or triggering subject, which starts the poem or causes the poem to be written, and the real or generated subject, which the poem comes to say or mean, and which is generated or discovered in the poem during the writing. That's not quite right, because it suggests that the poet recognizes the real subject. The poet may not be aware of what the real subject is, but only have some instinctive feeling that the poem is done. Young poets find it difficult to free themselves from the initiating subject. The poet puts down the title, Autumn Rain. He finds two or three good lines about autumn rain. Then things start to break down. He cannot find anything more to say about autumn rain, so he starts making up things. He strains. He goes abstract. He starts telling us the meaning of what he has already said. The mistake he is making, of course, is that he feels obligated to go on talking about autumn rain because he feels that is the subject. Well, it isn't the subject. You don't know what the subject is. And the moment you run out of things to say about autumn rain, start talking about something else. In fact, it's a good idea to talk about something else before you run out of things to say about autumn rain. Don't be afraid to jump ahead. There are a few people who become more interesting the longer they, they are. There are few people who become more interesting the longer they stay on a single subject. But most people are like me, I find. 
The longer they talk about one subject, the duller they get. Make the subject of the next sentence different from the subject of the sentence you just put down. Depend on rhythm, tonality, and the music of language to hold things together. It is impossible to write meaningless sequences. In a sense, the next, next thing always belongs. In the world of imagination, all things belong. If you take that on faith, you may be foolish, but foolish like a trout. Never worry about the reader. What the reader can never worry about what the reader, what the reader can understand. When you are writing, glance over your shoulder and you'll find there is no reader, just you and the page. Feel lonely? Good. Assuming you can write clear English sentences, give up all worry about communication. If you want to communicate, use the telephone. Richard Hugo, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Lane to the stage. Now this one, there, there, was, there was an assignment, I don't know how many weeks ago, I haven't been around for about three weeks. This one's called, How to Get the Toothpaste Off the Brush, or Why the Motherfucking Toothbrush Will Never See the Light of Day. <laughs> Time may be that you have found a bit of toothpaste clinging to your toothbrush to the base of the bristles, and it is not that it is truly of any consequence, except that there is toothpaste stuck in the bristles of the brush. Now, how can it be done, that irascible removal of those pesky little bits? So I tried scrubbing my teeth much harder, breaking down those bristles, except all I got was bloody gums and a taste of cold copper in the back of my throat. So I looked at the brush, and those motherfucking bits were still in the brush. And exasperated, I banged the brush on the side of the sink. Bang! Bang, 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 and bang my finger on the side of the sink, and the motherfucking toothbrush went flying up in the air. I grabbed my hand, and the motherfucking toothbrush went straight down the gullet of the sink that was missing its little thing, a dingy drain plug thing, and I looked down, and the motherfucking toothbrush had disappeared. So I put my face down into the bowl of the sink, thinking I might catch a glimpse of the handle and fish it out. And I peered this way and that way, beginning to feel a strain in my back, and finally giving up, I tried to stand up, and I hooked my ear on the faucet. I could feel the tender flesh ripping my balance got pulled from beneath me. I screamed with all the energy of a banshee in the midst of the cold fury of hell, and banged the back of my head on the medicine cabinet. And I pitched forward to retreat from the menace, and I poked my eye on the handle of the faucet. I stood there stunned, one hand upon my eye, one hand on the back of my head, finger throbbing, and then I felt the warm trickle of blood running down my ear, dripping on my draw, and oh my God, onto my only clean dress shirt. I looked in the mirror, carefully washed the blood off my ear and jaw, rinsed my mouth out with mouthwash, feeling the sting on my gums from the fresh wounds, holding my finger out carefully and swore that motherfucking toothbrush could stay in that drain until the day of redemption, or at least until the sink stopped draining. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, that was Robert Lack. Sorry, sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Lane. Ladies and gentlemen, give him a hand. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome Tom with an H. Hi. Uh, this is to fill out. Last week I read, uh, what was it? It was uh, Fire and Water. Well, I got Earth and Air this, year, this week. Um, Earth. I am the great attractor, dancing in the void. 
I am where you come from, where you are, and where you will return. I am the keeper of hidden treasures. I nourish those who walk on my back even though they rape me in their greed. I am a constant fixed point, steadfast in my support, but I am always moving forward. I have a thin skin, ever shifting, but an inner core of solid, solid iron. I am your prison and your palace. I have seen you come and go, each time consuming a little bit more of me. All your ancestors are inside me, and I am inside you, so they are always with you. You have had a thousand legs, a hundred legs, eight, four, two, none. And yet, though you still fail to see it, you all have the same one. Air. I am the constant invisible hug. I begin to dance at the kiss of the sun. I carry foul scents and fond memories. I am the vast ocean above the land and sea. I agitate the water. I move the earth and I enrage the fire. I carry your meager offerings to the thrones of the divine. I am the swift poet dancing in the treetops on a crisp autumn evening. You do not know the full extent of my power, but you harness it to do your bidding anyway. I am the shag carpet and the wool socks, passing the spark and carrying the boom. Without me, you die. I am your first breath and your last. You have to share me with the birds, the bees, the trees, even the fish in the sea. I resonated the voices of your ancestors in the past, through the present, and into the future. Do you hear their calls? That is Tom with an H. Please welcome Ryan to the stage. Hi. The cities of the little people of the world are dying of a slow sickness, a cruel cancer of tongue and intestine. It attacks our livelihoods, meddles with our appetites. We are never hungry but always starved, as bloat fly flat, as bloat fly fat as we are shriveled and broomstick skinny. It confuses us with each other and itself with ourselves until nobody can tell each other apart or knows to guess the subtraction of faces from faces from figures or even cares about the order of operations or to slaughter animals kindly or hum while we soap and rinse our palms. And let us not forget the creeping, creeping certainty of our briefness, that simpering sense of selfish unimportance which from the savage unquiet of the speedway days, it dawns on us suddenly and ferociously, smothering us in imperious self-loathing and insignificance, so as to make us doubt and doubt and doubt, worrying us down with the improbable but absolutely necessary necessity of stopping incessantly, turning inward time after time after time to reaffirm our own existences, and even narcissistic, self-possessed, and isolated from nature, shrugging painfully as we doubt, as we doubt ourselves again, as we think, 
I think, therefore, I am not. As we are unsolid and we are so knowing, we begin to wonder at at absurdity, and we think we are figments of our own imaginations. We doubt certain articles of speech and reason. Our mind temples collapsing inward teach us toward unthinking our own dooms as if the clock would work backwards and we could relive, trapping our non-existing in a brief segment of time in which we were eternally rebounded, or as if we could die and be suddenly enlightened of our unbeing, of our unbeing, finally understanding these persons we called ourselves. We're fictional all along, but the sad madness is the suspension of our sanity. We only understand life well enough to die. And then this is just like a lighthearted autumn poem because I didn't want to end on such a depressing note. <laughs> um, all the rusty colors come down and smother our bare walks, a natural confetti to golden bronze and brown are gray. And for once, heaven is in the ground instead of the sky. We walk on it and it crunches deliciously under our feet, sweet like an apple. That is Ryan. Give him a hand. And keep it going for Michael Bradley. Memories of Florida. The warm wind cuddles me like a basil's blanket. The sun so bright, I almost cannot see. Reflecting off the white, white sand, my eggs squinting like a mole in daylight, fixed stone to cut my feet, shuffling along like an injured cripple, as I grope towards the building I cannot make out. Only the blessed light of shade it throws out. A line of scrambled cross, almost like it's in a reaching sanctuary. And suddenly I can see and walk normally and free see my surroundings. Um, and I almost run through the automatic door into the reverberating cold blast of air conditioning. I, I remember once more how much I hate the beach. <laughs> Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome Christian to our stage. This one is, um, they believe that what we did was stupid. They They believe that what we did was stupid. 
They hated the way we tossed thoughts in the streets and shattered windows of opportunity because we had no other way to get in. They despised the way we ran reckless with our dreams tucked between our chest and biceps, dipping our shoulders to meet the next opposing force head on. They hated the way we taunted anguish with gaping wounds that never scarred and open scars that never fade, beating our chest with the tempo laid out by the constant buzzing of the sun, daring God himself to challenge us. They could not stand the way we stood tall and never flinched and never fell and never limped so you could identify our swag no matter how torn we were. And because of that, we never knew our own pain. And they thought us barbaric the way we threw love fits and fists, missing our whole intentions because every time we fought each other, we were only punching mirrors. Battering bruises kept me alive so long they made it impossible to kill me. They interrogate me with, they interrogate my masculinity with their judgments. They scorn our youth with the term mischievous, labeling us the problem. They sit here with their perplexed stares and ask me, why are you trying to prove something and what exactly is it that you're trying to prove? I am proving that I exist. Like the, pet, like the painted letters and images left on the concrete slabs they try to lay on our faces, shouting from the walls so that someone might recognize us. Like the constant scribbling by colored, colored children hoping someone might hear us. Like the b- blood oath my brothers made in my name because three words never make you feel adequate enough. So when we speak of equality, remember that I'm still trying to prove myself so that my love can be just as unquestionable. No matter what conceptions of right they may have, through words Words, dreams, colors, blood, sacrifice, fists, bruises, hope, and love. And when I have finally proven myself, maybe the streets will be quiet and we won't be shattering your windows with our thoughts. That was Christian, ladies and gentlemen. Give him a hand. If you all want to say happy birthday, just say it. We don't have to sing it because that'd be weird with her not being here. But if you want to say happy birthday loud enough for the mic to pick it up on the count of three, maybe happy birthday, Melissa. You want to do something like that? Okay, one, two, three. So I'm doing some shows. Um, so I'm doing a show at the Red Light. Um, uh, this is going to be a, a poem in it. It's called, it's an edited poem. It's called Love in the Time of a Gentrified Gang Fight. Old Survivors in a New Hipster Basement. I flip a line from T.S. Eliot. Black was the color of my true love's weave. Black, our extensions put together. Black was our coffee, her lighter and our swisher sweets that blurred out sets and noise. Black were the hours of the night we spent together, a mood and shapes and traces, a tone, a face to meet our faces with a radio, kitchen and floor. Sweet nothings aside the crack of the door of old gunshots drowned in our chestnut. Black, sleepy, slow, vibrant, sedate, It alive, so alive. Black was to know, to want to know nothing but her, nothing but all we held between the everlasting, and the lasting hours that seemed like minutes when bang, 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 and banging 
cold, brutal, present and short, the sound of thugs' tribunals ache in the narrowness between the actual and the wall. The light in the morning to our sense and our senses seems so dark, so dark now. Thank you. That is Robert Lashley. Thank you all so much for joining us. Have a hand for all the poets who performed for you this evening. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and I'm talking to you new poets. Doesn't like to talk about it. Oh, poetry night. <laughs>